This is Action Sports Jacks on ESPN 690 with Brent Martineau and Austin Lane. Hey, welcome in here on a Wednesday edition of Action Sports Jacks on ESPN 690. Split up here on a Wednesday. Yep. We're supposed to be on remote. I'm doing it for my house instead. You put the puzzle pieces together. My allergies are killing me, though. I will mm. say that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean it's raining outside though. It is it, that that I've told you before. I've told people before when it starts raining, my allergies go crazy. It's weird. Yeah, I'm a weird guy. Uh, so that's what happens. Uh, how about this? More cancellations in college football now. Ohio State won't play. You just heard it in the update. Georgia won't play either. Already three games postponed in the SEC. That's really turning up a notch now, uh, all the COVID-19 and how it's impacting college football. And I think there was something to the decision-making of the owners in the NFL yesterday. We talked about it briefly, about going to an eighth game, because they might smell this coming a little bit. You know, they might know that, hey, look what's going on in the college game. Uh, even though we're in our bubble, even though it's gone pretty well, even though we had that one little bout with it and not too much more, who knows what's going to happen now that we enter the winter months and temperatures changing. And now, obviously, things are spiking in in, uh, in the opposite direction. So I, I think this was a little bit ahead of I, – I know it was planned anyway to be on the table, and obviously the, the owners meet and, and they vote on it. But it got me thinking, you know what, they might kind of think, hey, we better have something in place uh, because – uh, even though we've been okay, we've been able to handle it so far. Uh, this could be on the on the horizon. So no doubt, uh, this is this feels like along with the Tennessee week, Austin. This feels like the most impacted we've been once the seasons have been rolling uh, on the football season. Uh, of COVID-19. Does it feel the same for you? Oh, no, without a doubt. I mean, you know, you have games getting canceled there from, you know, different conferences left and right. Um, so it's definitely impactful right now. We're talking about Alabama, LSU. I mean, that's always been a, a you know, a pretty story game. Now, LSU, obviously, this year um, has kind of fallen some hard times a little bit with, uh, you know, all the guys that they lost. But it's usually a game that people talk about. And, you know, whether, once again, it's the Halloween parties, whether it's the fall and it's getting colder outside, whatever the reason may be, um, you're starting to see teams fall off a little bit. And I I seriously wonder if you have to ask that question. Because, you know, I think right now, did Alabama any players come down with COVID? This was an LSU thing. Yeah, this is an LSU thing. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, and obviously Trevor Lawrence, had, he had his whole case. But I think it was just him. Um, it's, just, it's an isolated incident, if you will. But... You seriously got to start asking the question. If you have teams like LSU or other teams out there that haven't, you know, they're not really, let's just say they're not college playoff eligible anymore because they have the bad record. I wonder if those student athletes take into account, like, well, we're not going to the championship. We're not going to go to the playoff. You know, like, that was the goal. We didn't achieve it. I wonder if players start taking a step back and saying, you know what? Let's just go ahead and be a little more casual about this whole thing. Let's go out to that party. Who cares? And what what whatever happens happens. Yeah, I think it's a it, it can work two ways, right? It can you could already have been doing that, and that's why some of this is going on. We joke about the Halloween parties, and a lot of people do, and maybe there's some reality to that. But they also this also could get your attention. You know, there, yeah. there's a lot of football players. These games mean a lot too. Getting that that video. Uh, out there to the scouts, right? I mean, these last handful of games, whatever it might be, wins, losses, national championships or not, there's a lot more at stake for these Power 5 programs and some of the players that play for them. Draft stock, uh, even making it to the Combine, the Senior Bowl, other places. So I, I think... Uh, it could work both ways. I think it, it could work the way you're talking about, like, oh, well, well if we're going to get canceled, we're going to get canceled. Or 
it could, you know, get their attention again and grab it halfway through the year and say, hey, let's finish this thing out. We already put all this work into it. Let's finish this thing out. Now, meanwhile, some interesting news out of Tallahassee. In fact, a lot of interesting news yeah. out of Tallahassee. Tamori and Terry has left the program. Uh, not a lot said about that. James Blackman is transferring. So it looks like to me a couple of guys that basically said, hey, I want out of this thing. You know, and, and you gotta look at the future. We don't know all the circumstances, but especially, you know, Blackman saying, hey, you know, I'm gonna go focus on my work and, and I'm, a, I'm looking at where I can go next year in the transfer portal. Tamari and Terry's going to the NFL and he might be like, I ain't dealing with all this stuff anymore. I'm done. I'm gonna go work. You know, I'm gonna get to work and, and start working toward the NFL. Maybe I should have opted out. Maybe I shouldn't have come back. And Marvin Wilson, is going down because of an injury. All the stuff that he's gone through to be a part of this thing, and now it's a season-ending injury for Marvin Wilson. But, oh, baby, I mean, Florida State, who you hear right here on ESPN 690 on Saturdays, they've had a struggle, and it's going to get a little bit worse. Now, Blackman was already struggling, and, and Jordan Travis was doing his thing. We saw Chubber Purdy a little bit. Uh, Tamari and Terry had been in and out anyway. Uh, but just the idea now that you have lost those guys, some leaders of that team, and Marvin Wilson, a sincere leader of that football team and a very good player, man, it's going to be a rough uh, finish to the, to the finish line for uh, the Florida State Seminoles. No, it's going to be very rough, whether it's due to injuries, whether it's due to transferring and them not wanting to be in the program anymore. Anytime you lose leadership like that and you're a pretty young team, um, that's going to affect you, especially on a program right now that's trying to – integrate the culture that's trying to you know push things forward from what Tager kind of left that franchise in and now it seems like it's gotten worse actually so yeah i feel like you know when, when florida took one step forward with you know the big win against unc they've taken like four or five steps back now and, and obviously going forward with recruiting and having that good sense of feeling going in the next season they have to win some of these ball games towards the end of the season just so you can have some kind of thing to point out be like hey guys look at what we're doing right now is working you just got to buy in a little bit it's hard to point at any one thing right now and be optimistic if you're in that locker room or if you're a fan of Florida State. Uh, they could do a documentary on Mike Norvell's first season at Florida State. I mean, it's unbelievable the documentary that could take place, especially behind the scenes. What are they telling us? What are they not telling us? All those things. So those are some of the big stories that just came out this afternoon. If you're just catching up, uh, Florida State with, with those injury reports and departures in their program. Also uh, the cancellation of the Georgia game. Now a cancellation of Ohio State, Maryland. So uh, that continues to be a topic this week in college football what about the nfl well of course we always go with the jacksonville jaguars and how about this a caller early in the show today so let's get to the lines right away in the first 15 minutes of the show here on a wednesday jamel's hanging around and i think wants to talk a little bit about the jags what's up hey how you doing man good doing good um i got a question why uh i know since sean Carr fought the team in 2012. Why, when he fired Gus Brady, why he ain't just go ahead and fire the whole coaching staff? Why he's taking too long to fire the whole coaching staff? Jamal, thanks for the call, man. Appreciate it. Uh, I think what you're referring to is basically, you know, when Shad Khan made the move with Gus Bradley, which at that time was pretty much a no-brainer, he basically got rid of Gus, and that was about it. You know, Todd Wash stays as a defensive coordinator. Doug Marone gets elevated from offensive line coach at the time uh, to uh, head coach. Nathaniel Hackett was around. He stayed on board. So all these coaches stayed on board. Now, there have been a little bit of a mix and match since then, but 
Uh, that's Jamel's point. And well, and, and to try to prove his point even further, you have to remember back when Mike M- Malarkey was here. I mean, he essentially got one year, and then he was canned. Um, along with the entire coaching staff as the well. The entire staff was gone yeah. that time around. And I think that's what Jamel's asking. Why not when you make a move like that, why don't you make it a clean sweep? Yeah. And I think there's a couple of things here, Austin. If you go back to that time frame, uh, I remember this, and I remember being told this. I think Shad Khan was a fan of Todd Wash. I think that's part of the reason that Todd Wash was kept. I'm not sure how much Doug Marone had a say in that, or maybe Doug went to bat for him too. But I do think Todd Wash liked uh, what Wash had been doing, um, I shot kind of like what Todd Wash had been doing. Uh, and so, and then you look at what Todd Wash and that defense had done, right? I mean, 17, he keeps them around. They're one of the best defenses in the league. And then 18, even a top five defense. So there was some motivation to keep it the way it was since they had acquired all these players and it looked like it was about to blossom on the defensive side. But the Marone thing, I think goes back to Tom Coughlin. Once he decided to put Tom Coughlin in charge, and sure, Doug Marone acquitted himself nicely in those final two games. They won one. They looked really good in the first half against Indy and then lost that game when uh, he took over for Gus Bradley. But that was a, a Tom Coughlin decision more than a Shad Khan decision to keep Doug Marone. Uh, you know, we've since learned that basically Tom Coughlin said, hey, I got two guys that I think we could fit here and work here, and Doug Marone's one of them, and uh, we really think Mike Smith. Uh, former Atlanta Falcons coach, was another one of them. And so uh, that's really what the situation was. So I think that's what led to this kind of hybrid transition with Tom Coughlin coming in and a lot of other things staying the same because I think what Shad Khan has done over the years, I think that's why some of the loyalty exists for four years for Gus Bradley, four years for Doug Marone and others, uh, Dave Caldwell especially for eight years, is I think he looks at the organizations like the Patriots. I think he looks at the organizations like the Pittsburgh Steelers. And what have they had, Austin? They've had a ton of continuity. And so he thought, as my guess here, is if we can keep a lot of this in line, we've done some good things, not enough good things, but if we can keep this in line, we bring Tom Coughlin and change the attitude a little bit, right? Have that culture change, win now mentality, uh, this isn't good enough anymore, win lunch, all that stuff. Mm. Well, then maybe it will click and, and piece together. Well, we now have the luxury of hindsight, and sure, it worked for a year and a month, and that was about it. Yeah, I mean, I understand that. And listen, everyone wants to build their team around the Patriots. But the problem you have to understand is that no one can build their team like the Patriots. No one can take a six-round quarterback out of Michigan and build a team around it. It's just it's simply not possible. Now, we've tried to do that with Gardner Minshew, and we've seen what that's done so far. So, to me, the, the Patriots will always be the outlier. But I can point to teams like, you know, the Eagles or even really the Chiefs who always go like new offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators, who always – it's kind of like a revolving door in the coordinator position who have had success. And obviously the, the Eagles as well with a pretty young coach and Doug Peterson. So um, it can work both ways. I just feel like the issue is when you choose to – maintain the coaches for a long period of time is and we've been through this right now we've talked about this before is that's when the friendships get brought to light right and that's when friendships become sometimes more important than wins now i'm not saying that's the sole reason right now why todd wash and doug Rohn, everyone's still here but it begs the question a little bit so I do get what you're saying where it's better to try to hang on as long as you can because that's where you build the chemistry and that's where you build the rapport. But at the same time, you have to ask yourself, if you were to let this coaching staff go right now, would they get you know a job at their same position someplace else? And yeah, probably not. Yeah, especially and, now. Exactly. And that's for good reason.
right? Because they haven't been successful. So that answer right there should tell you all you need to know right now about whether you know you should keep to choose to maintain this staff for a longer period of time or choose to go another direction. Yeah, and I think um, I think those are fair questions too. Uh, just to reiterate my point a little bit, and that is. I, I think you look at two organizations. I brought the Patriots in there, okay, and I, I agree. I, I think the Patriots are, and I've said this a lot, and I was just guilty of it. Uh, it's still okay to look at the Patriots and see what they've done because they've they've turned a losing organization into a winning culture over the last two decades. But I do think Tom Brady was such a big part of that. They got so fortunate there. Belichick, everything, everything clicked, uh, and and you can't take anything away from them, but it's hard to duplicate it. So I think the organization to look for in these two instances is who you want to be more like is Pittsburgh. You know, Pittsburgh, is, Mike Tomlin has been there for now, ever, right? What have they had, like three coaches going all the way back, right? Yeah. Power and Noel and, and Tomlin, and that's it. Isn't that the story of the Pittsburgh Steelers? Mm-hmm. And they've had some ups and downs. They've raised the standards so much that even when they're 7-9 and nine or an 8-8, eight and eight, actually, I don't even think Tomlin's been 7-9. and nine. I think he's had a winning year every year he's been a coach. Um, never had a losing season, so he's been 8-8 eight and eight before. And so even when they're 8-8, eight and eight, people start to – you know, say, hey, I don't know. I mean, it might be time to make a change. Tomlin, they won, they won a Super Bowl since '09 or whatever it is. So people chirp a little bit. But I think the continuity of that Pittsburgh organization, the culture they've built, the winning ways and the understanding of it, part of it is not flipping coaches and, and changing all the time, having people that stay there a long time. Now, they have the luxury of the Big Ben and the quarterback, too. I think then you go, you know, across – the state line and get into Ohio and you see Cleveland and now how many coaches and quarterbacks and all these other things GMs owner even ownership have they had in the last 20 years right and they have not been able to find success so I think that's what people look at now it doesn't always work uh, sometimes it's better to flip and, and go find the right guy sometimes you do wait too long you can argue that with Gus you can argue that's happening right now with Marone but I think sometimes patience wins the day, too. It's won the, won the day before in Pittsburgh. Uh, I think there's an example of it not winning the day, and that's probably in Cincinnati, Austin, right? Because uh, Marvin Lewis stayed there forever, and he did okay, but he never did beyond okay. I mean, that was it. He could get him to the postseason, but he couldn't win a game. So I think, listen, there's no perfect formula. And and so I think that's what Shot has looked at. I think he his the illustration of him owning this team has pointed toward the Pittsburgh model, where I'm going to try to keep things the same rather than break it up all the time and restart all the time. Yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying there, but at the same time, like, all right, so for instance, what would you say Pittsburgh is known for? Like, if you were to define Pittsburgh as an identity, what would you say? I would say toughness. Okay, but like I'm saying, like, would you define it more as an offensive team, a defensive team? I would say, even though they've had the franchise QB, I still think of them as a defensive. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I think that I would agree with you when I say that they've won a lot more games due to their defense than even Big Ben and their explosive offense. But, like, I guess my, what the point I'm trying to make here is, listen, Tomlin is also an innovative guy, though, right? Like, yes, he, he's hard-nosed and he fits that culture. But keep in mind, Pittsburgh had a guy by the name of Dick LeBeau for, like, what? 12 years as the defensive coordinator, one of the biggest legends ever in terms of calling, you know, plays on defense. I mean, he, yeah. he was an innovator. The guy was, he's a legend. 2014 comes around, and all of a sudden the Pittsburgh Steelers aren't that steel curtain anymore. You know, they're not having success on defense. And what happens? They let him go. It's almost like letting like a Tom Coughlin go, if you will. But I think he was even more well-respected um, when they let him go in Pittsburgh. So, and then they go another direction. So, 
I get what you're saying where you got to keep things the same, but if things aren't going good and if your identity is getting ruined from, the, you know, whether it's the scheme, the play calling, Tomlin was never afraid to make that decision, even though maybe it's going to pain the organization a little bit because the guy is such a staple of that team. doesn't matter. If you're not going to be successful, they, they let you go. Simple as that. Yeah, and by the way, just so... Don't mix words here. I'm not advocating that this is the right way to go. I'm just observing that this is the way shot has gone. This is what he, I believe he believes in. Yeah. His continuity will win the day more so than constant change. Yeah. And, and there is something to constant change. It's like, okay, you're spinning your wheels. But to the fans, I think, and to the outsiders, when you're always firing and hiring and changing QBs and GMs, you know what that looks like? It looks like you're trying harder. You know what I mean? Mm. It, it also makes you vulnerable to making a lot of bad decisions, but it almost looks like you're trying harder to get it right because you keep getting it wrong and it's not good enough. The question is, like, any of those situations with the Cleveland Browns, all these times that they've changed over, would they have been better off just hanging on one more year? Would they have gotten there faster if they just hung on one more year? I don't know. Maybe not. Um, and obviously, Shad's way of doing it right now, four years for Gus, four years for Doug, uh, three years for Coughlin, eight years for Dave Caldwell, that doesn't seem to be working. So, I mean, it hasn't worked. I mean, it's worked for one season. So this way doesn't always work either. And that's what will make this offseason increasingly important but also intriguing to see which direction he goes. Will he do something that he hasn't done? Because he's tried a variety of things now, from Malarkey and Gene Smith to mm. Gus and Dave to Dave, Tom, and Doug to Tom uh, or to just Doug, really, and Dave. I mean, that's a lot of different variations, even though there haven't been a lot of firings. Yeah. And so it will be interesting to see which way he goes. Jamel also asked us this question. I think he asked Sakuza when we, when we let him go, and that was, so when are they going to make the move? Right, And I will continue to say this. I don't know where you fall on this, Austin. I could see Doug riding out this entire season. I, I, I will continually say what we know from Shad is he's not a big fan of firing like now. He would have done it at the bye week if he was. And I think this was more proof that he isn't a big fan and that he doesn't see a lot of um, change. Now, I will say this. Atlanta's starting to win some games. Something changed in Atlanta. And so maybe it is helping them that they did make the move when they made it. Hasn't really helped Houston unless they're playing the Jacksonville Jaguars this season. So I believe you're probably looking at a timetable like Gus Bradley. Maybe a couple weeks to go in the regular season. Maybe they make the move to get the head start on whatever else they want to do. But I also wouldn't be surprised if the season ends on December 31st or whatever it is, and that's the day that he makes the move after the, the final game. I just don't think we're going to see anything uh, before mid-December. Yeah, I mean, I'd probably agree with you on that, depending how these losses turn out here a little bit. At the same time, though, and I don't have the analytics in front of me, but I always compare it to last year when Carolina Pan the Carolina Panthers chose to fire their head coach, Ron Rivera, uh, pretty early on in the season. Now, whether that was an advantage or not, I point to the fact that they got their guy. They got the highly coveted guy in Matt Rule, and nobody really predicted of him to go to Carolina. I think everybody thought maybe Dallas, maybe New York, but certainly not Carolina. So... Regardless of when this coaching staff gets fired, I think if you're Shad Khan, you have to have the serious conversation with yourself and say, will there be any kind of advantage if we were to let them go before the season? And if that answer is yes, if the analytics say yes, then I think you have to do that. 
um, if it's the status quo and it doesn't really change a thing, well, then so be it. Do what you want to do. But I think that if you're trying to get a competitive edge, if you're trying to get an advantage, you have to take a look at those analytics. You have to take a look at the plan going forward and say, do we benefit right now by making a change in this locker room? Saying, all right, Doug, thanks for everything that you've done. We're going a new direction, obviously. Best of luck to you, and we'll see you down the road. I don't have the answer. I just hope that the people in that locker room and the people in that stadium have the answer. Uh, at the risk of repeating myself, which uh, if you listen every day, and I hope you do, maybe this will sound like it, but I just want to be consistent with what I've thought through this whole process. I really believe that Shad Khan probably behind closed doors investigated a move last year. I believe he did. I believe the way their franchise looked wasn't very good. I believe that that wouldn't have been very tra- a very attractive job. You might not have got the best candidates. Maybe it's a little feeler out to McDaniels and his representation. Be like, yeah, I ain't interested in that right now. You got Minshew and you got Foles. I don't like either guy. You got a problem with Yannick Ngakwe, Jalen Ramsey, and all these people are complaining about your organization to the NFLPA. I don't like anything about it. Mm-hmm. So I really still believe now you start asking those questions in late November and December to that representation for McDaniels or Dabo Swinney or whoever, you know, name your guy. You get my point, be enemy. Then. This is like, hey, we have $100 million in 2021 in cap space. we got a bunch of young guys now. We played 10 of young guys the other day, and, and they're coming along. You have uh, maybe the first or second draft pick. You know, you, you've this the, the stench of the Ramsey and, and NFLPA stuff is gone. I think now this is a way more attractive job. And, and heck, on, on a day, really, we just saw Houston, and we wonder, Houston let go one, their director of communications, which was the only female director of communications or VP of communications in the NFL, and that's not uh, – being received well across the league. We still don't really know why that happened. Mm. But Houston looks like they're a mess. And they're one of the vacancies right now. Outside of Deshaun Watson, there's really nothing to love about the Houston job. So all those things. I don't know how the behind the, the closed doors dealings go when it comes to hiring a guy. I just got to believe some of the questions are being asked. No, without a doubt. I mean, they have to be, right? Because let's be honest, this team right now, they're not playing for a playoff berth. They're not playing for the Super Bowl. They're playing for the future. So if you're playing for the future, I can only hope and only pray that the conversations right now um, at TIA Bank Field are conversations of, you know, how do we attack this going forward? How do we get better? And who do we pursue? Yeah, one thing's uh, for sure. They need to make a good decision. And and it, it's not all wrong in their decision-making. It just hasn't all worked um, in their decision-making. They need to find the right mix when that comes uh, when it's time to do that. All right, we'll take a break. Uh, Brett Martineau here from the home office, uh, Action Sports Jacks Austin Lane, back in the studios along with Coos here on a Wednesday. It's Masters week. Got the flag right behind me. I can tell you all about my Masters round if you want to hear about it. I know you do, Austin. I know you do. Yeah, let's get it, man. I mean, what, it's a Wednesday. It's a pretty slow day for us today. <laughs> See what you got. And we got like nine segments. I can do two holes a segment. There we go. Now we're talking. Yeah. I thought uh, it was going to be a podcast format. <laughs> okay, that's fine. That's yeah, fine. I'm Live saying, radio. Yeah, yeah. We, we got we to gotta test sample it out. <laughs> so, uh, uh, anyway, we got more on the Florida State situation with the players going, uh, more on the cancellations in the SEC. More to stick with the NFL a little bit. What happened today in Jags land? What's Doug Marone saying? Had a couple of interesting comments, in my opinion. One about Gardner Minshew. And one that may have taken a shot at the old regime a little bit here in Jacksonville. At least that was my interpretation. But uh, we'll share that with you along the way. It's coming up next. Action Sports Jackson, ESPN 690. 
Austin Lane. I want you to put yourself in Leonard Fournette's shoes. Probably a little bigger shoes than you're rocking right now. Boom. Shocker, you're wearing sandals, and that's all good, though. Brent Martineau. Well, you, you are, too. Mar- they're just like... <laughs> I mean, they're just like, look I like I might bands. as well be. I might as well be. Action Sports Jacks on ESPN 690. You know, business-type approach, doesn't like a lot of BS, just wants information. You know, he's just going to take the information and see where he's going. And, you know, obviously it's it's a day-to-day process, and we're just trying to get him, you know, you know, keep... You know, keep the progression going and see see where we can go and, you know, see how many steps he can take. I think the more you're on film, you know, and people see you, they start studying you, you know, then you got to really, you know, continue to work, you know, and, and that's the difference in, in a lot of positions. You know, you can go in there sometimes, have a little bit of success, but then once people really start watching you and going, you know, you got to make sure that your game's pretty tight, you know, not to give anyone an advantage. That is Doug Marone today here on a Wednesday. He said some interesting things along the way. We'll get to them uh, eventually here in the show. Again, one about Gardner Minshew. One I thought he took a little bit of a – actually, I thought he took a couple of jabs. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I, I heard the, the one uh, quote, and I was like, oh, my gosh, he's talking directly about the previous regime. And, and that's what I thought. Uh, maybe I was reading into it. I'd like to get Austin's opinion and maybe others. So uh, that's coming up in just a little bit. But first uh, of what he was just saying about Jake Luton, and, and the Jags. And I want to talk a little bit about the youth. Uh, there was an interesting article today from the New York Jets at how many young guys they played in that game Monday night. And they kind of were like, hey, that's, we're, we're developing guys, right? That's, that's where they're at. They're 0 and 9. They obviously stink. And everybody's bought into developing guys. Well, there's no doubt about it. The Jags have done the same. I mean, they try to develop guys. They thought they'd be better than 1 and 7. They weren't. Uh, a lot of people thought they would be 1 and 7. And well, they are. So, uh, but the bottom line is, regardless of record, that they are trying to develop guys. I mean, that's crystal clear. They drafted 12 rookies. Uh, they have four other undrafted rookies, and many of those guys are playing. So, get to that in a moment. But I have a thought here, Austin Lane, as we welcome everybody back into a Wednesday show. Uh, I'm here at home, Austin Lane, back in the Action Sports Shack studios. And uh, he was just talking about what I believe, my interpretation of what he was talking about there, is is just the the tendencies that guys get watching a player on tape. And so now you have Jake Luton. He's going for his second start. And he threw the ball 38 times. Can you – how long does it take, do you think? Like, when you were watching tape, from a pass rusher standpoint, a way a guy would maybe dodge the rush, you know, lean on one side of his body or another. I, I mean, I don't even know. Like, what are you looking for? And – how often is something tipped off that might help you strip sack fumble, get to a spot, move him off his spot? Uh, how much is there really in that game within a game? Yeah, so when you're analyzing, especially quarterbacks nowadays who are pretty mobile, you know, and they kind of, we call it the, the honey hole, we call it the sweet spot. And every quarterback, they have their sweet spot of where they like to step up and throw the football. I mean, Aaron Rodgers has it, Patrick Mahomes. Every quarterback has a tendency of when when it's hitting the fan, let's just say, of where they want to go to get rid of the football. And the whole point of running games as a defensive line, um, you know, or just kind of like putting your best pass rushers to one side sometimes, it's the fact that you're trying to take that sweet spot away. If you take someone's comfort zone away well that's where the panic kicks in that's where the sacks come from or the turnovers come from so i mean to actually like kind of get a gauge of um where that sweet spot would be i mean we're talking you know we're talking five six seven games at least you know and then obviously back when i played like all all those cuts of you know the guys 
stepping up in the pocket or, or scrambling. Like those are all put up into one, you know, cut, and then we watch them back to back to back to back. So I think to get an accurate um, view of you know the, the quarterback sweet spot, you need at least six or seven games, depending how that game flow worked out. The thing that comes to mind, uh, what, what you're talking about again. I mean, this is. I was a baseball guy. I think, uh, you know, the way I view this is a cornerback, uh, maybe even a linebacker, but a pass rusher looking at that quarterback like a batter would look at a pitcher and trying to figure out if they might tip a pitch or the slot that they're throwing from or if they can just pick up anything that helps them out. So that's kind of the way I look at it. Uh, what you're talking about, too, maybe a little bit more specific is it comes to mind is like Tebow. When, t- when everybody was talking about Tebow coming out in, in the draft and getting to the NFL and could he be as good, what nobody talked about in college was this long wind-up delivery, right? Mm. Nobody talked about it because he was p- performing well. Uh, they had probably the better athletes. The speed of the game is a little bit different. He could run you over, run around you. He could do other things to escape it and maybe make up for that deficiency. Well, as soon as you get to the NFL, those deficiencies get highlighted. And what everybody talked about is, yeah, you can work on the motion and throwing it and getting it to your ear and not dropping the ball. But when you're under duress, when things speed up for you, when it's a little bit more of a stressful situation, most likely you're going to rely on what you were accustomed to doing. And that is a little bit of what we saw with Tim Tebow, right? I mean, when he got under duress, that ball would drop a little bit. And I think even Bortles had a little bit of that problem where the ball would drop Mm. instead of just, boom, quick release and get it out of there. Is that kind of what you're talking about uh, in terms of those kind of tendencies? Yeah, absolutely. But I'm also talking about, like, so, for instance, when we played against Tom Brady, like – we dreaded it, but we also embraced it because two reasons. The reason why we dreaded it was because Tom Brady at the time back, you know, in the like 2010, 2011, he was notorious for getting the ball out early, right? So you'd have a great pass rush. You would beat your guy, but it wouldn't matter because the ball is out in like 1.5 seconds. So it didn't matter if you beat your guy or not. The ball's out. So, you know, you, you hated that. Yeah. But what you enjoyed about Tom Brady was the fact that if you put him, you know, if you took away the honey hole, if, if you took away the step up lane, he wasn't going to scramble and beat you. So in, in retrospect there, you could run a bunch of games. You, you could run a bunch of exotic things just because he didn't have the ability to beat you with his feet. That's why yesterday when I asked Josh Allen a little bit, I was a little surprised because I brought the Josh Allen. Like, do you change the, your approach when you're pass rushing to Sean Watson or now Aaron Rodgers? Now, don't get me wrong. Aaron Rodgers isn't in terms of the same speed or really in, in the same terms of mobility as Deshaun Watson. But we've seen time and time and time again when Aaron Rodgers extends a play with his feet, Big things usually happen. So when, the, when when those types of quarterbacks are at play here, you got to change how you actually rush the passer because now you can't afford to you know to have a f- fundamental breakdown in your rush lane. You have to stay home, and sometimes staying home means listen. I, I know you want to rush half a man and you want to work a speed move, but we really need you just to bull rush somebody and push them straight back and collapse the pocket. And, and that's the biggest difference between those statue quarterbacks back there and the mobile quarterbacks. Now with Jake Luton, for instance, you know if Green Bay is watching film on him right now, um, you know the, the, the scouting report was very adamant that he is kind of a statue. He is a big arm quarterback, but not the most mobile. Well, guess what? 
I saw Jake Luton put somebody on the spin cycle um, on Houston and absolutely embarrass them. So now if you're Green Bay, you take that into account a little bit. He's not just a statue guy. you got to take into account for the mobility a little bit. And when you do that, you got to change your pass rush tendencies, and you just can't afford to get up the field and use speed rushes. You have to use a combination of speed and power now. Yeah, that's like me hitting a, like a home run or a triple in baseball, though, man, that, that touchdown run. like I'm not concerned about that if I'm, if I'm the Green Bay Packers, right? I mean, they saw one play, but that Jake Luton's not going to beat you every week doing that. Um, I mean, I don't think he would want to do that. But listen, all we have is one game to go off of right now, and he did it. Yeah. So yeah. as far as I'm concerned, he's one for one. I'm, like I've never seen Matt Ryan spin somebody like that. <laughs> I've never yeah. seen Nick Foles spin somebody like that. True. I actually thought, take away even that play, which obviously his legs were, were more on display and noticeable in the open field and, and scores. But I actually thought he moved better than I thought he would move anyway. Like, you know, what really surprised me watching Nick Foles last year is I thought he was more mobile. Like, I thought watching the Philadelphia Eagles, maybe it's because he caught the Philly special, you know? Yeah. Or, or maybe, I just felt like at times I saw him moving around and making play, not necessarily making plays like Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray. I'm just saying, like, extending plays, buying a little bit of time. And, man, he got here, and it looked like things were in slow motion. I was like, holy cow. I mean, who is this in the pocket? It looked like Brady in the pocket, like where you can't move at all. It looked like Manning in the pocket where you're not going to move. You may take a sidestep and be savvy with it, but that's it. And so I was surprised by that with Nick Foles. Well, I, I almost expected to see it look like that with Luton, and it really didn't to me. I, not, again, not quick, not going to beat you, not be dangerous with the legs. But I just thought he did a couple of nice things when he had to with his feet, uh, and, and that impressed me, even outside that run uh, the other day. The other part of it, too, and, and this is what I would be interested in, is how much will they let him grow within the offense week to week? See, I think this is a three-week experiment until Doug Marone has the decision to play Gardner Minshew. I believe that he'll play this week against Green Bay and then the Steelers. I also thought last week they would make it so simple, Austin, it would be like, boom, first read, get it out. Mm. Now, they did it a lot, but then I also saw him sit back there in the pocket and have a couple of options. Maybe an underneath route. Instead, he goes over the top, whether it's the Chark or, or maybe Eifert or, or you, you name it. He, I think he was like four for seven on the deep route or a deeper throws. So I actually thought they let him do a little bit more from the pocket in terms of progressions and everything else. I thought it would look super simple to the naked eye, and it didn't look that way to me. No, I mean, it wasn't super simple. He, he did have more than one read, but to me, and this is what I talked about last week, it's the it's the genius of Jay Gruden to make sure this guy was ready to go. Listen, when, when you're a, a first-year quarterback, you're playing your first game, you have to have the, 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 fail safes, the, the fail safes set in place. And, and Jay Gruden had those fail safes set in place. And by fail safes, I mean he had Chris Thompson every once in a while in the backfield as a wide receiver, you know, as a wide receiver option. He had Tyler Eifert down the middle where you feel comfortable with your tight end. Like wh- when you're new to the game and, you know, you're, you're, it's other things breaking down. Usually you go to your running back or you go to your tight end. Now I'll be honest with you. The, the one, the one caveat that I have with this offense that I saw last week that I'd like to see a little bit more improvement on is getting James Robinson in the pass game a little more, right? Like he, he showed capabilities of being a pretty good passing threat. And I think that you can kind of maximize the potential of James Robinson and use him as a three down back. Well, now you got something special because the last thing I want to see is Chris Thompson come in and the defense is going up. Oh, it's going to be a pass. It's going to be a pass. Let's get James Robinson a little more involved 
involved in the pass game and keep defenses honest. Yeah, it, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see game two. Now, <laughs> let's look at this. This is uh, uh Simon says. Simon says. Uh, I feel like I should do something further with that, but I'm not going to. Uh, he should have had four picks in game one with no film on him. So with film and disguise and coverage, it's at least six. <laughs> yeah, there you go. For sure. Uh, not everybody wears the sun- sunshine and rainbows. I understand he had he, he easily could have had a few catastrophic mistakes. Yeah. Uh, he got some breaks there. No, uh, for sure. You know what's interesting, Austin? Outside of those like three or four throws, which were almost catastrophic mistakes, so it's not like, hey, that didn't happen. I didn't really think he made too many bad throws. You know what caught my attention? He had like three balls knocked down. He's six foot six. And I guess, like I was sitting next to Demetrius Harvey in the press box, and, and he knew this, so I'll give him credit. He said that was part of his problem at Oregon State. Now, I didn't know that, but he said at Oregon State, he had a lot of balls knocked down. Hmm. So he obviously isn't, a, I mean, he's six foot six, so it's not a height thing. He obviously doesn't find the passing lane sometimes. Yeah, I mean, listen, whether you're Drew Brees or, you know, you're, you're Ben Roethlisberger, I mean, the height's not the most important thing. It's that throwing motion. And for some reason, the throwing motion's a little off. Uh, you're going to hit the defender in the hands. Let's be honest, though, and give some defensive linemen some credit. There's some big boys back there as well. Yeah, well, listen, every time Minshew would throw a ball and it got deflected, everybody's like, see, short. Yeah. And and I can tell you this, I don't remember three balls getting batted down all year for Gardner Minshew. True. And I remember three in the first game for Jake Luke. So... I mean, it is what it is. All right, we come back. The youth of the Jags. Uh, Going to comp it a little bit to what the Jets are doing. Uh, I'll, I'll give you some perspective on the conversation, why I wanted to go here. Uh, that's coming up next. Action Sports Jacks on ESPN 6 9. Hey, I want to tell you a little bit about an event. Uh, we're going to be live over at Fields Cadillac in Orange Park today, but that's not the case. They've got a special event coming up for St. Michael's Soldiers Tomorrow night, 8 o'clock, it's a virtual concert, essentially. Uh, Donnie and Johnny Van Zant, Saliva, the Kurt Town Band, and other uh, musical artists, uh, along with uh, raising funds for St. Michael's Soldiers. They do so much, and here on this Veterans Day, if you can think about them and who they help overseas, and also the families back here in the Jacksonville area. Uh, our Dream 18 supports St. Michael's Soldiers. They've put a lot of work into this. They had to come up with a creative way to do it, and this is the way they're doing it uh, with the help of a lot of different musical artists as as well. So check it out tomorrow night, 8 o'clock. You can find it on Apple TV and Roku and, and their website. Here's how you get more information, helpsomebody4.com, helpsomebody4.com. And uh, maybe you can help them out here on this Veterans Day. Uh, we give a, a big-time shout-out. Uh, to all the men and women who have served and continue to serve uh, our great country. So uh, thank you, and and one way you can thank them is to support uh, St. Michael's Soldiers tomorrow night, 8 o'clock. And by the way, if you go on the website now, helpsomebody4.com, Again, it's a number four. Uh, there is a an auction going on, a live auction or a silent auction, and uh, some cool items up there, including uh, some good Leonard Skinner stuff on there as well. So make sure you go check that out. Welcome back, Action Sports Jacks on ESPN 690. Brent Morton, Austin Lane. Stevens on the line and wants a question about the batted down passes. So let's get to that before we move on. What's up, man? Uh, yeah, um, I was listening to you guys talk about Jake Luton's issue that he was having about uh, – Getting the balls batted down. Uh, Austin, since you play defensive line, and I guess a good example would be Brent, since you played baseball, uh, I noticed it in college with him. Most of those batted downs, he's either trying to 
get it over the middle, but being so tall, uh, I noticed the issue when I played, they're trying to get it to sink so much like a sinker pitch, and I think he's just releasing too low. I don't know if Austin's seen that in the past when he played. Like, the release is just so low, it's easy for the defenses just to swat it. All right, thanks, Steven. Appreciate it, man. Go ahead, Austin. Take it away. All right, so... Listen, whether and I didn't see the, the the ball float too low. I mean, I didn't watch it to to that in depth. Let's just say, but I will say this: I think that Jake Luton had a little bit of the Tom Brady effect, um, and that's how the Houston Texans game planned around him. What I mean by the Tom Brady effect is, listen. The, the game plan that Gruden set in place for the Jaguars it was simple. I mean, we all called it. We all talked about it. It was going to be very short passes, getting the ball out quickly, and being a very quarterback-friendly offense against the Texans. So anytime that you have that, and you know that you have that, um, instead of getting those, those great pass rushes in, defenses are taught to just put your hands up and knock the ball down. Um, so, so I'm convinced. I don't care if it's Matt Ryan. I don't care if it's Big Ben. I mean, if you put your hands up as a defensive line and you find the right spot, you can knock a lot of balls down. The difference usually is, though, is that teams are obviously trying to rush the passer and they don't have the, quite the timing of, you know, trying to work a pass rush move and then get your hands up to knock the balls down. But when you know the ball is going to come out quickly, there's no, no better thing to do than actually push the offensive lineman back a little bit and then time those passes. That's what I think the Houston Texans did a little bit. They found that timing, um, and in doing so, had some batted balls down. Well, and also, uh, just from over the years and listening to coaches when asked about this question, uh, because Bortles had a lot of passes knocked down. I think Henny had a ton of passes back, bat, uh, batted down. A lot of, not all the time, but some of the time it's on the offensive line, right? Austin, I mean, you got to keep those guys' hands down. Yeah, no, well, without a doubt. But like, like I was saying, though, I think that Houston was kind of looking for that. Though, yeah, yeah. Right. I think Houston was expecting Luton to get the ball up pretty quickly. So in doing so, you kind of just kind of play back a little bit, almost like you're playing volleyball, right? And you just wait for it to happen. Yeah, I'll say this. I I think my eyes told me that that was one of the better offensive line games of the season, at least in pass pro. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not that they struggled in the early part, but the last few weeks I thought their offensive line was kind of leaking a little bit of oil. And I thought they played pretty well for Luton. Again, that was a little bit of my part of, hey, I think everybody just amped their game up a little bit because they knew they had a kid playing quarterback. Yeah, I mean, that, that could very well be the case as well. I mean, you mentioned this yourself, Brett. Anytime you got a new guy coming in, um, sometimes the guys around him be like, hey, guys, let's, let's step our games up a little bit here because we got a first-timer in there. All right. Uh, listen, I promise we'll get to the young guys after this. It was too short of a segment to get dive into it. I want to do that next, though. Uh, the young guys of the Jaguars, are well, they've obviously committed to them. Is it working? Is it the right way to go? Or are there, are there other examples around the NFL that it can work when you do this? Um, are the Jags kind of their own little example before they ripped it up and did it again? We'll talk about that part of it, plus some interesting comments I thought about Gardner Minshew on the way on Action Sports Chats on ESPN 690 right after this. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.